from Kurtco Media. In honor of Memorial Day, we here at Cars That Matter decided to re-examine a car that we've covered over the course of a few previous episodes. It's a car that was made too fast, but perfectly. A car that was made too late, but just in time. A car that was hammered out in only 49 days that would go on to change the history of the world. Today, we know the brand very well. Jeep. We see the Wranglers, the Renegades, the Cherokees, the Wagoneers, but even across all those models and all those decades, we still see the DNA that went into that very first car. Randall Withrow from the U.S. Veterans Memorial Museum explains. The Jeep is an icon. Look at what it did at the critical time that it was developed and the use of it. We're looking at World War II. The degree of mobility, the flexibility, and the adaptability that goes with the Jeep. I do think that that is a a critical part of our history of World War II, that one of the things that enables us to be where we need to be and take the material where it needed to be. So I think that's a real history lesson in itself there. You couldn't probably do the same thing today, but the time that they were doing this, that was the right vehicle for the right time is the way I see it. And still, for such a historically significant car, there's one crucial question that remains unanswered. Where does the name Jeep come from? Author and Jeep expert, Paul Bruno. I don't think anybody can ever really know. There's theories it was from GP, from general purpose. And Mark Allen, director, head of design of Jeep, seems to agree. There are a couple different theories. One being, of course, it was a general purpose vehicle. And in army speak, GP just got shortened into Jeep. But there are other possibilities. There's theories. It was Eugene the Jeep. If you remember Popeye, there was a character in the Popeye comics His name was Eugene the Jeep, spelled J-E-E-P, and he was a bit mystical and could wander through walls and go places others couldn't. But what I found out later on was in the interwar years, the people would call a lot of different vehicles that would come into the depots, Jeeps, new vehicles, experimental vehicles for, I don't know why, for whatever reason. My best theory is, and we documented this for the court case, they spent a lot of time, and this was during the war, just a few years after everything happened, trying to find out where the Jeep name came from. And all they could conclude was, we don't really know because there's conflicts in the stories, but that they probably started calling these things cheap. Originally, they were calling them the Bantam, the Willis, the Ford. They were known as a quarter ton four by four truck. So they probably started calling them Jeeps in the fall and winter of 1940 and then into 1941. And the name just stuck to the quarter tons, as they called them, even though they never really weighed a quarter ton. That's how they became known as Jeep. That's our best guess. If they couldn't figure out with all these people they deposed for the court case exactly where it came from, I can live with that. But that's the best that we have at this point. Honestly, I hope we never find out because I like the mystery. (laughs) But even if the origins of the name are lost to time, the impact of the car will never be forgotten. On today's Cars That Matter, we're going to take a closer look at Jeep. This is Cars That Matter. Paul Bruno, author of two essential books on the subject, Project Management and History, The First Jeep, and The Original Jeeps, came upon the history of the vehicle through a familiar but unexpected source. I live an exceptionally exciting life, so I was watching the History Channel, shock, 
And they had on the big rigs of combat Jeep. And just before a commercial break, they said the first Jeep was created in 1940 by a bankrupt car company in Butler, Pennsylvania, in the astonishingly short time frame of 49 days. And I'm like, what is that all about? These guys had nothing bankrupt, given this impossible task, all sorts of conflict, all sorts of things to overcome, the world hanging in the balance in May, June, July, 1940 with the Battle of Britain. So that's how I started pursuing it and I started researching it. The key that made the both books possible was a court case, the Federal Trade Commission versus Willis Overland Motors, Inc. That was actually done during the war where it's literally an ultimate deposit of early Jeep history. And when I was able to find that in the archives and all the materials that was there, the story was there to be told. You see, leading into the 1940s, the U.S. military was woefully underprepared for combat. You had the decade of the 1920s where you didn't really have a major threat to world peace, so they called it the peace decade. Then in the 1930s, you just had this slight thing going on called the Great Depression. There was no money. They were spending the money on the New Deal, on domestic programs. The army was starved. So by the time you got to 38, 39, the American military was ranked like 19 in the world behind Bulgaria. In the late 30s, especially in the infantry, and we document this in the book, they did a lot of testing on vehicles. They came up with a Mormon Harrington 4x4 for what the infantry was looking for, but through some challenges in the procurement process, to put it nicely, they didn't get what they wanted. You also needed a vehicle that could be used across the using arms, had that level of versatility, not only infantry, but cavalry, field artillery, ordnance. And so by May of 1940, the middle of the month, two weeks into Hitler's blitzkrieg into the low countries of France, they had a meeting at Camp Holabird, Maryland, with all the using arms looking at a vehicle that could replace the mule and the horse for transportation transporting small payloads and troops, and they needed something between the motorcycle and sidecar and a half-ton truck. And at that meeting on May 21st, 1940, they had nothing. Zip, nada, nothing on the drawing board, nothing in concept. And that's where they stood. Then the miracles started to happen. Word spread throughout the automotive industry about the need for a new kind of vehicle. So one of the guys at that May meeting in the infantry goes back to his office and the American Bantam Car Company, which would build the first Jeep, their representative, and the gentleman's name was Colonel Oseth, he goes back to his office and the Bantam representative is sitting in his window waiting for him. And he comes in and the short version of the conversation is the gentleman was named by Charles Payne, the Bantam representative. He says, I'm looking for Robert Howie of the Howie Machine Gun Carry. We need to talk about vehicles, we think we can build one for you. And Osa says, I'm the guy that you need to talk to. And so they came up in two weeks with a general characteristics they needed for a vehicle that would meet infantry's need, which was needed to weigh about 1,300 pounds, low silhouette, carry three people, be able to mount a machine gun, so on and so forth. The memo is dated June 6, 1940 exactly four years to the day before D-Day. So in two weeks, they came up with the general characteristics for a vehicle, and then the story continued from there. The American Bantam Car Company was the successor to a company called the American Austin Car Company. And they built these tiny cars, the Austin 7, in the 20s and was very successful in Europe. And Sir Herbert Austin in the late 20s wanted to bring it to America. Well, of course, he brings it right at the beginning of the Depression. American Austin goes bankrupt. Four years later, the company's bought by an exceptional gentleman named Roy Evans, who reconstitutes the company in 1935-36. They try to sell small cars late 
the Depression. There's no market for it. So in the spring of 1940, the American Bantam Car Company, which was the premier small car company in the country, is completely, utterly, totally bankrupt. They have nothing. And their only last shot to stay in existence is to get a government contract. They were doing the Hail Mary pass before they invented that in the 70s in football. With Bantam as the front runner, both Ford and Willis would also join the race for the contract. However, working within government requirements wasn't always so easy. The Army decided we need something between this motorcycle and sidecar and a half-ton truck. So that's 500 pounds to 2,000 pounds. So this vehicle is just going to magically weigh, without talking to anyone that would actually build it, it's got to have to weigh 1,300 pounds. Nobody could build a vehicle for 1,300 pounds. No one. So the weight requirement was a real issue for all the three manufacturers throughout the procurement. But what happened was they put a thing on the June 6th memo for armored face shielding. And why did they do that? Oh, Seth basically says, I was upset at the quartermaster and I didn't want the quartermaster to procure this vehicle, which is what the quartermaster does. So by putting that requirement in, it would go to the ordinance committee. So it went over to ordinance in mid-June and ordinance said, you know, we have absolutely no clue how to procure or build a vehicle. Let's go visit Bantam and see what they say to do. And that's what happened. They went to Bantam and it's documented in the book, Those Two Days. And I just laugh and go, eh, nothing changes 80 years later. I'm really upset at the quartermaster because they didn't give us one in the last year. So we'll see if we could shove this over on the ordinance and see how that goes. What you had there and you also had at Willis and Ford is 1940 was kind of the end of the initial time of the car industry. So you look at the car industry, both for Bantam and Willis, these people that started, say, 1900 to 1940, they were hands-on experts built them themselves into the details of actually building the vehicles. They didn't sit in some office and design it and then have someone else build it. They built them. So at Bantam, you had these exceptional individuals that had cars in their blood and the same at Willis and the same at Ford. And that's why they were able to pull off the miracle, the 49 days, as it's called, with Bantam, where they basically hand-built it, reverse engineering it, where they actually built the parts, put it together, and then they would do the blueprints. And then the 49-day requirement from the army. That was another well-thought-out one, which was like, how long do we think we need? Hey, let's just do it in 49 days. And Bantam, they built their vehicle in 49 days and delivered it on the 49th day with a half an hour to spare. So how did Bantam, Ford, and Willis fare in meeting the initial requirements? What happened with Willis was Willis struggled during the Depression. So they were conveniently not bankrupt in 1940, but they were still not where they were the glory days back in the 20s. And they really wanted to get in on this Jeep stuff. So what happened was the Army developed the specifications working with Bantam from mid-June to early July. Bantam thought they would get a negotiated contract. No, they went out and sent the bid to 135 companies. Only four came to the bid in July 22nd, 1940. One was Willis, there was Bantam, and then Ford and Crosley. Ford and Crosley said, we can't even build this in 75. We can't build this in 49 days. We're not even going to bid. Willis put in a time material bid. The guy comes out and Bantam's bid was perfect. They had a drawing and I actually held Bantam's bid proposal in my hand. Butler, Pennsylvania, da, 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 da. And so Major Laws, who was the head of procuring vehicles at Camp Holabird, Maryland, which was the primary depot at the time, it's outside of Baltimore. It's no longer in existence. He comes out and says, well, Bantam and Willis, uh, Willis has the low bid. And the band of people turn white. 
And then he says, but Willis can't build it in 49 days. They're saying with 75 days, Bantam says they can do it in 49 days. So with penalty, Willis is disqualified. Now I tell you, I don't think Bantam didn't know if they could do it in 49 days, but they were bankrupt. What did they have to lose? So it's like, sure, you need it in 49 days. Thumbs up. We'll get it to you. No problem. We'll do it in 48 and 23 hours and a half. So what happened with Willis was they lose the bid, short version, the army contacts them and they cut this deal on the side, unbeknownst to Bantam. Willis, if you want to build a vehicle at your own expense and your own risk, we, the army are wonderful human beings. We will take a look at it and consider it. So Willis did that to their credit. These guys just marvel at the quality of individuals that were at Bantam, Willis and Ford. So Willis built their vehicle. They spent $35,000 of 19 40 money. And I looked that up recently. That's like $640,000 today. So Willis got their vehicle in. Then Ford looking at in early October of 1940, they're like, the Bantam vehicle was in, but Bantam's small. We don't know how they may do. I was in government. I know you can have a little bit of a bias toward bigger firms, less risk, that type of thing. So the quartermaster calls up Ford in October of 1940. They come down on October 4th, 1940, having a meeting. And the quartermaster says, you know, Ford, if you want to build a vehicle and submit it to our specs and the things we're doing, we will take a look at it and give you a shot at it. So that's how Ford came in. And they were able to build their vehicle in about seven weeks also. But they had a lot of lessons learned from Bantam and Willis that was kind of shared with them. I'm not going to say it was in a it's just the stuff was there. So even though Bantam was awarded the contract, Willis and Ford were still involved with other contracts. But what about the all-important weight requirement? So nobody can meet the weight, right? With Bantam, they hire this engineer because they have no staff. He comes to Butler, draws up all the plans in like 18 hours, and then they fill out the forms and he puts 1,800 pounds in the weight. They go down to Camp Holabird, Maryland on Sunday, July 21st and meet with Charles Payne, who I mentioned earlier. He looks at the form and he goes crazy. He goes, you can't put in 1,800 pounds for the weight because you'll be disqualified. This is a government procurement. You got to check the check boxes. They literally call up a stenographer 3.30 in the morning, they retype all the forms. And 20 years later, Carl Probst is recounting this. And he says, we put in 1,273 pounds for the weight. I go to the archives in 213. I find their bid proposal. I look at the weight box and it says 1,273 pounds. And I know exactly where that number came from. It was a moment as an historian going, this is the exact document. And he put in 1,273 pounds. We don't want to be too close to 1,300 because that might not look good. After a lot of going back and forth and the testing, and in February of 41, I think they came up with 2,160 pounds officially. Willis came in at 2,159 and 11 ounces. <laughs> Willis, they were right on the edge. I used to say, if you wanted to disqualify Willis, just put your foot on the scale when they're weighing the MA and they'd be fine. But I got to tell you this story. They're testing the Bantam in October of 1940 and these generals come out, cavalry general and an infantry general. And they go, we want to go out in this vehicle. So they go out, they get stuck. And while they're stuck sitting there waiting for someone to pull them out, they go, how much does this weigh? And Carl Probe, and Charles Payne were there. So Charles Payne tried to start working around the weight to say, well, we're going to get it to weigh a little bit lighter. And Probst is saying, well, it weighs this and that. And the generals go, you know what? If the two of us can lift the back of this out of where we're stuck, the weight's good. They go behind it. The two of them lift the vehicle out of where they were stuck. And they go, you know what? Thumbs up. It's all good. Weight's good. Another one of those exceptionally scientific ways to decide something. 
So, in the end... Bantam delivered on September 23rd, 1940. Willis delivered on November 13th, 1940. And Ford delivered on November 23rd, 1940. So those first three original Jeeps all came in 1940. And just like that, the most unlikely of underdog vehicles was off to war. We'll be right back on Cars That Matter. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. So, what happened to the original Jeeps? Are there any left? Ford sold the thing off in the 80s to somebody, and they realized what they had. The Willis prototype was lost to history, as far as I know. But the Bantam prototype, that was also lost to history. But the seventh Bantam ever built was called the BRC-60. That's actually at the Smithsonian in Butler, Pennsylvania, is just north of Pittsburgh. And they call it Gramps. So you have the two oldest Jeeps. The oldest first Jeep is the Ford Pygmy, absolutely. And then you have Gramps in Pittsburgh also. And so that's like amazing artifacts that you have. The original 1940 Ford Pygmy is actually on the National Historic Vehicle Register. After contacting our friends at the Historic Vehicle Association, we were able to speak directly to the man who cares for the car, Randall Withrow, with the U.S. Veterans Memorial Museum in Alabama. I'm a child of the greatest generation. I grew up in Alabama and went to the University of Alabama and then Jacksonville State for an MBA. And then I had a little disagreement with the draft board. That didn't work out well. I wanted to fly Navy, passed all the tests, but the eye test, they're really picky about being able to see that carrier. So I was drafted and then I spent 26 years in the Army. Went to Fort Benning School for Wayward Boys for OCS and did a lot of missile, R&D, intel, stuff like that. But the big thing is, I've always been in awe of our World War II folks, the greatest generation. And in the Army, I would go to just any of the museums that were in the area, Army museums or the local museums. I thought that this is something that I needed to do, is to set up a museum. So I incorporated a nonprofit corporation back in 86, but I was still active duty, couldn't do anything really with it till I retired. But that's the Alabama Center of Military History. And then under that was the Veterans Memorial Museum. Once I retired, we began looking for a site and we found that the city had been using, this used to be the airport here, and they had moved to the what we call the Jetplex. And then we were able to get the use of the building in the two acres that started the museum. And the thing about the museum is it's nonprofit, all volunteer, Nobody's paid, and we're unfunded. We have to raise money to do anything we're going to do. Subsequently, people had asked us, well, I guess you're only about the North Alabama veterans, but no, we're about all United States veterans. And out on our main floor, there's all 50 state flags. And so we added the U.S. to the Veterans Memorial Museum logo to better explain to people that we were about all our veterans. My goal in life is to have this sustain this so that it's for the future, not something that's around to me or any other individual, but around all of us. That was my only goal in this, is to leave this as a permanent facility. That's why I set it up like I did. That's our goal and our mission. Unfortunately, we're losing resources as we begin to age out. It's difficult to get the young ones off. But I think with the modern Jeep, 
on the scene. We have gotten some folks that basically came back to their roots here, and so that's something else we can play off of. The younger people, I don't say that they don't care. I'm saying that they don't know. And so that's what we're trying to do here with education is just to show them all this stuff is more than just stuff. It's training aid. It's a visible example of what their ancestors had done and used to fight for and preserve this country. We're partners with the Dixie Division Military Vehicle Club. They're primarily out of Birmingham. And they come up and we do a just a casual rally. And we get out whatever we can within the museum. Normally, we bring out our the Stuart tank, the half-track, the armor car, the armor personnel carrier, and as many of the Jeeps as we can. We did a video. We couldn't run the Pygmy when they were up here. It rained. We were going to take it out. So later... We staged a video and had three guys in overcoats with BARs and <laughs> kind of recreated some of the pictures that we had from the test. And it's out there, too, on YouTube, I think. It's pretty interesting. Oh, that's the, the only bad thing is the pygmy is smoking a little bit, and then the camera accentuates that. And then people mention that, and I said, well, look, it's 70-what years old. If it wants to smoke a cigar, it can. One of our guys, Dr. John Ominski, who works as a laborer here, <laughs> connected us with the idea of the pygmy, and we started an association with them when we were looking at that going into the register. It proved to be a very good relationship for us all, I think. But that was my introduction was through him. It is a significant vehicle. There's no question about it. Can I ask you about how they actually went about documenting the pygmy? Were you involved in that? Did they send a whole team? We got a team down here, and we actually, we wanted to keep them. We could find something for them to do, but they had other things going, too. But, oh, yeah, they came and studied and documented. The pygmy was even 3D scanned in the documentation that they wrote down. It was very detailed, very impressive at the level of research. And, in fact, when I got the documentation, I think some 54 pages that was done by Casey. Maxim. He sent this to me and said, hey, would you look this over and see what you think? And I went, wow, I think that's a tremendous amount of research. That's what I think. My hat's off to them. They're dedicated to what they're doing. And that's good because what we're trying to do is just save the history. But the museum houses more than one important Jeep. The museum has examples of everything from the pygmy all the way to, we got one of the pilot model Humvees, serial number one. So how did that come about? It came about through my addiction. My dad was a Model A guy, and we always had Model A's. And then I grew up watching uh, combat, wanted a German helmet, got the German helmet. And then somehow we found out that Ford made Jeeps during World War II. I didn't know it. I was just a kid. So then we set about trying to find a Ford World War II Jeep, which came from Tuscaloosa, a guy that had bought it surplus in 1951 when they were changing over to the M38. But that started the whole thing. And then we decided, hey, it'd be good to have one of each, Willis and Ford. And then wouldn't it be good to have one of everything World War II? <laughs> and it went from there. I was able to get the GP that we have is the actual GP that's featured in a Life magazine, January the 3rd, 1944, the article called Civilians by First Jeep. So we have that GP with documentation going back to those people. And out there on YouTube, the Army sent a crew to Kansas, where this mayor of Lucas, Kansas, had heard about them, took a train to Chicago, bought them from a famous surplus dealer, Berg, and drove it back to Kansas. And the Army sent a team out, and they did a short, it's called Strictly GI Honorable Discharge. 
So if you're searching YouTube, that's that GP talking. Because I wanted that after I got the Pygmy, we decided that we needed to get each of the prototypes that followed the pilots. So that GP was in the works. In fact, I was looking for a GP from a fellow who lives in California, originally from Birmingham, and he had connections out there. And I was talking to him about getting an unrestored GP. And he said, well, why don't you just get the GP number one? They're going to auction it off. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, you get Hennings. Yeah, but I don't pay attention to the auction. (laughs) So I looked that up, and it's what it said. The sale was, of course, at the Ford Museum at Greenfield Village, but the company was out of Hudson and Marshall, out of Macon, Georgia. And coincidentally, the next week, I was going to Fort Stewart, and you go through Macon to get there. So I called the lady down there and said, before I spend $50 on this catalog, is there a picture of that Jeep in there? And she said, oh, yeah. So I go by, and I decided that I was going to make a run on that. They didn't really understand what that was. And even the picture they had in the catalog was reversed. So it looked like it was right hand steer. But anyway, that worked out real well. And then, of course, it was out TDY to Fort Lewis, Washington. And I heard about a Bantam. I went to see Roy Beagle. And he was in his 80s, had a stroke and collected locomobiles and things. But as part of that, his dad was a Bantam dealer in Pennsylvania. That's where Bantam is from. So I was able to get that and ship it back on a consolidated freightways as a motorized golf cart. And then I was friends with the guy, Bob Emery, out of Minneapolis, who had restored a GPA. It was at the Kansas City Convention, and it was best to show national first place, the first vehicle into the MVPA Hall of Fame. I said, well, if you ever want to sell it, let me know. And I was home on leave from Germany, and I'd called the check, and it seems his in-laws were ill. His wife had gone out to Oakland to assist them and that he was going to sell out the stuff. He said he would consider selling it to me if I'd come up there and talk to him about it. So I went up and convinced him that I wasn't trying to profiteer or do anything and was able to get that. The MA prototype, that's the rarest, really, of the prototypes. A dear World War II veteran lived in New Orleans, had been at Carlisle, and somebody had told him about one that was in a barn in Ohio, and he went over and looked at it, and the two brothers had bought it from Wright Field in 47 and then wrecked it, and it had been in a barn ever since. So as he's coming back through my hometown down there in Gadsden, he stopped by and showed it to me and did the same thing. If you ever want to sell it. Well, his wife passed away and he was moving back to Laurel, Mississippi. So I got the call on that. The keystone to the arch is the pygmy, but the prototypes are significant that follow it. We have the Jeep history here, probably the most complete that there is. We're not bragging. We're just saying this is an asset and we want them to see it. Someone said, well, what happens when they find a Bantam or even a Willis Quad? And I said, I'm going to stand up and salute. I want to preserve the history as it stands right now. We were lucky to have this taken by Ford and given to the Ford Museum and just be in the right place to get it. But if somebody ever came up with the the original Bantam, then we would certainly salute (laughs) because it's about the history. It's more about the history. Obviously, Randall believes it's important to preserve and remember these vehicles. But why? The Jeep is an icon. Look at what it did at the critical time that it was developed. And the use of it, we're looking at World War II, the degree of mobility, the flexibility, and the adaptability that goes with the Jeep. I do think that that 
is a critical part of our history of World War II. That one of the things that enables us to be where we need to be and take the material where it needed to be. So I think that's a real history lesson in itself there. You couldn't probably do the same thing today, but the time that they were doing this, that was the right vehicle for the right time is the way I see it. Everyone that had anything to do with it, I think for the best part, established a love for it too. That's why they were so in demand after the war, and that's why the CJs got started. They've, what I call, morphed into the time to what we have now, but I think that started it right there. There's the spark that has continued to burn, if you ask me. It is taking off in popularity again. But what really I think is interesting, you see a lot of 20s and 30s women driving these things. And I thought, that really shows the attraction for that kind of vehicle. I believe they've been able to adapt that and continue to change and upgrade the design because it's a totally highway practical vehicle and everything now. And the last one that they just came out that I know of is like a four-door hardtop with a little short pickup in the back. And I thought, that is the utility factor all over again. I think they've continued to develop and, if you will, follow the current need and address that. And so it's not over. It's just another chapter. We'll be right back on Cars That Matter. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. Randall clearly knows the importance of preserving the history of the Jeep, but I wanted to know if anything has replaced Jeeps in the military field. The last of the Jeeps were called MUTs, Multipurpose Utility Tactical Truck, the 151 and 151A1 and A2. They replaced the Jeep, the Mule, the three-quarter ton, and a couple of other things with a Humvee, which was a huge monster that did not do it, if you know what I mean. And then today, the circle is going back around again. They have Polaris Razors that are out there basically imitating the original Jeep. It's like a circle, and we've got the circle that's now complete when you start seeing those Razors. They're four-person, got gun mounts on them, high mobility, and they'll go places that the Humvee can't go. Gee, doesn't that sound like the Jeep? But I don't, I don't think they'll ever admit it, but I think that's where we are, back where we began. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So how did Jeep become the brand we know today? Were Jeeps sold commercially following World War II? I spoke to Mark Allen, director, head of design at Jeep, to uncover the transition and see how Jeep honors the past through design. Immediately after the war, they started selling Jeeps commercially. They were not really different than the military spec Jeep. They had to do a few things to federalize them. Notably, they got their bigger headlights and a seven-slot grill. But again, they were marketed heavily as an agricultural thing or an alternative, like their third car. They were marketed as a primary thing. And then shortly after that, they started to expand a little bit and created pickup trucks and SUVs and things like that that had modern features like doors and heaters and crazy <laughs> that but the little cj what you're talking about and that's what they call it cj was shorthand for civilian jeep it kept going 
And it was not changed very frequently, even in the body style that went for a long, long time as just a kind of a third little car. In fact, I'd heard before we started doing the four-door Wrangler, the JK in 07, that for the longest time, the vehicle that the Wrangler was shopped against most was a speedboat, being that it was the third vehicle in the family. And it was never a giant seller until we started adding the four doors to it, but it was always kind of in the background, but it was kept in the lineup because it was so core and so important to the line. And we keep it now when we draw a picture of all the universe of Jeeps, all available vehicles, the Wrangler is always right in the middle because that is the core. And then everything that we make has a piece of that car into it. Really, the Wrangler shoulders the heavy load on the historical side and it can move around, swim around in its lane. And I'm not too worried about that. The other vehicles, we always sprinkle in a little bit of history, but try not to be overburdened by that. For instance, we just finished up the Grand Cherry. Cherokee renewal. And I think that's the fifth generation of Grand Cherokee. It's more beholden to Grand Cherokee as a past or even before that Wagoneer. We try to put a little bit in there, but not, you know, I never want to be retro. Wrangler, I never consider retro because it never left. I admire 911. I bring them up all the time because I think they've done a really good job of cultivating that style of vehicle. It's an immediately recognizable shape. And we do the same thing with Wrangler. We try to keep that in line. But the rest of the vehicles, not so much. And we're growing. We're growing on the top. We're growing on the bottom. We're growing in different regions. We have vehicles now that we sell only in China or we have stuff in South America. We only sell there. That kind of trend is going to continue as we grow around the world. And it's been a rapid growth. We're still learning. I would say that's the best word I can come up with, learning how to be a global brand. And even while paying homage to the past, Jeep has big plans for the future. There will be electric powertrains in our future. It's not a question of does the technology exist? It does, obviously. Can we make it work the way we want it to do? I think, yeah. The changeover, getting there is the hard part for us because we are a large scale manufacturer and battery technology, not the technology, but just the charging stations, et cetera, are not quite where they want to be yet. I am of the opinion that the gas companies need to just become energy companies. They've got the property and the locations to charge up. I'm frustrated by different cars needing different chargers and adapters. Somehow we managed to standardize the hole that I put the gas in worldwide, but I have a different plug in China than I have in the U.S. But that will get sorted out. The larger the vehicle, the larger the energy demand, that gets tricky. If I've got to tow something, that gets tricky. As far as a small vehicle. It's like the D segment size is the most logical to electrify at the moment. D segment is, we classify by size A, B, C, D, and a D currently is a Cherokee size. A Grand Cherokee is the next size up that is an E. So a D segment kind of makes the most sense for energy on board versus aerodynamics and cargo capacity. That's the most popular at the moment, but I also believe that there's so much money and R&D being put into electric right now more than ever. It's still a storage and cost issue, but I think we're going to get there. Remember floppy disks went to chips to micro SDs. I think a similar thing is going to happen. Not that radical, but it's pretty amazing where these technologies have gone. Just the screen I'm looking at now used to be a big, thick CRT 
<laughs> batteries will get smaller. They will get cheaper. They will have more range to them. And range seems to be the thing everybody's trained to ask about, range and charging times. And probably 300-ish miles range is the most acceptable thing for, for most people. And charging within a reasonable amount of time would be half hour or 20 minutes or so. Just a few years ago, I live in Michigan and I couldn't make it to the top end of the state in a Tesla in less than two days. Now it's an easy thing to do in a day. So that's pretty rapid change. I see that continuing as more, more and more people are going to electricity. It's going to be an avalanche at some point. It's not quite yet, but the planning is certainly underway. And yet, if anything remains constant in the ever-changing automotive landscape, it seems to be Jeep's reputation. When you say the word Jeep, hopefully the vehicle that comes to mind is this little humble thing. We call it Wrangler today. We changed the name at some point. But that is something that we hold on to very tightly. For instance, we use this little cartoon now. It's a profile of a 1941 flat fender military Jeep. We've been using it more and more as a, a logo. In fact, it may show up in places where we put the word Jeep on the vehicle now. It's just that it is such a worldwide recognizable thing. And I reflect on that a lot because when you say Jeep, that's the vehicle that we want to come to mind. And it's, again, our little humble beginnings. What other brand could do something like that? Although we are a monster brand, we're a monster worldwide brand, honestly. People seem to think we're a very accessible, super easy to relate to automotive brand. I like that. From threading the needle of a 49-day delivery schedule to restaging the dynamics of World War II, all the way to becoming a major brand in the automotive industry, there's no underdog story quite like that of Jeep. When I asked Randall if there was anything he wanted to say to Jeep today, here was his answer. Hey, keep up the fire. Keep moving forward. The story of the Jeep is not over. I do not believe. Remember, the reason this car matters is because everyone who worked on its creation, everyone who drove one in the military, everyone who believed it could be something truly great when it moved into the public sector, every one of those individuals knew this car had to matter, and they simply ended up changing the world in the process. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, written by Chris Porter and Robert Ross, produced and edited by Chris Porter. Special thanks to Casey Maxson and the Historic Vehicle Association. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. Come back next week as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Kurt Co. Media. Media. For your mind.